we said, oh, well, we're going to build a brand that really is suited towards a landlord liking an arcade. And so we had come up with a brand called Token Cafe, which was a cafe style arcade, which was literally um, soft seating within our game room and um, and much more space than you would typically have and good lighting and very contemporary design, um, very family friendly. We were not the dark dingy arcade. Um, so we had built this brand that we thought landlords would like, and we were right. Landlords liked it. What was interesting was that our customers didn't figure it out. They didn't understand it. They didn't, they couldn't get the token cafe piece. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's going fantastically, Josh. How are you? I'm doing great. It is game time. Game time. Woo! But first, I have a question for you. All right. Do you have money that is tied to investments? Yes. How much? What <laughs> investments? What are you doing with it? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the reason I ask is because I, there is a certain mindset that goes into managing your investment, knowing that uh, knowing that you really want to protect the money that goes in to make sure that it is doing what it needs to do, right? That it gives you a return, that it grows, that you're not just losing it. And there's a, uh, there, there can be a lot of strategy to it, which is why, you know, investment manager is probably a good career choice for people who have a good, strong financial education and background. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. So I would also take that a step further that whatever you invest your time, effort, energy, and money into, you probably tend to pay more attention to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it could even be the difference between renting an apartment and buying a house. Sure. You know, yeah. the, the investment is different or, you know, the investment that you put into your job or you even, even into a hobby, you probably put a different level of energy into that. Um, so why are we talking about investing on the Attraction Pros podcast? I know. What on earth does this have <laughs> to do with attractions? Well, it turns out everything, actually. Uh, our guest today is Mike Abacassis. He is the CEO of Game Time, and he gives some really good executive leadership advice, and that's that we should be treating our leaders, and he uses his general managers as an example, uh, as investment managers, because he has multiple Game Time locations. All of those are investments that he has made into building a business, building an entertainment center, uh, you know, building a, a location that costs a lot of money, that continually costs a lot of money. And every single dollar that goes into it needs to be uh, needs to be treated properly so that it can return money back and that uh, and that the money is not wasted. So they a general manager in many ways is managing the investment of the business. 
And that investment, you know, could be new materials, it could be new attractions, it could be the team, you know, could be the the food and beverage, whatever it is that you see as important in your business. And there's a lot of things that are important in the business. If you look at that more as an investment versus just something that you manage, it's a much different mindset. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. So that's just one of the things that we talk about. We have, uh, we, we cover a lot of ground with, uh, with Mike here. We, uh, we talk about uh, how, how the guest determines the brand. You know, we talk about there's so much money that can go into branding and creating your logos and your color scheme and your, and your advertising and everything there. But at the end of the day, it is your guest that determines if what you set out is the brand or if it's something else. So we really talk about that and even pull back to say, how are the, how are the centers designed? How, are, how is it incorporated with the food and beverage, with the actual arcade and with the games and with the events and, and everything there that goes into a game time location? And uh, naturally, we, you know, we, we talk about the pandemic. I think that's come up many times over the last two and a half years throughout many interviews that we've done, many episodes that we've recorded. And uh, he, he's got quite an interesting recovery story. Uh, Game Time filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy and six months and seven days later, uh, exited that bankruptcy in a, in a much better uh, situation. So we get to really unpack what it's like to file for bankruptcy and how Mike actually uh, inadvertently prepared for that for, for so many years of the way that he has managed the business. And we get to hear all about how he was able to do that. You know, one of the phrases that kept kind of going through my mind throughout the entire interview was nuts and bolts, right? Mm -hmm. Mike really gives us a lot of nuts and bolts and building the foundation of strong entrepreneurship, like you said, strong executive leadership, things that I think a lot of people probably don't think about from a legal standpoint, from a, from a, you know, minutia of business standpoint that Mike really, you know, really has learned about and has, has taken a great interest in and put a lot of his investment of his time into to learn about it. Um, that I think if you listen to this episode and you don't take away some nuts and bolts um, about how to run a business, then maybe go back and listen to it again because you'll get it the second time because uh, Mike does cover a lot of ground. Take some notes, get your pen and pencil ready, put your notes in your phone, whatever you want to do. Um, but there's a lot of nuts and bolts in here about um, the legal side of business and just kind of business in general. Yeah. And it's so fascinating. So I would say uh, let's get to this interview with Mike Abacassis. It's game time. Mike Abacassis, welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast. We're really excited to chat with you today. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, so, Mike, to kick this off, can you give us a little bit, uh, a little bit of background about yourself, and also tell us all about Game Time? Oh God, that's a a long story. I think I'm going to take up the whole podcast in the introduction, <laughs> but. Um, Short version myself, um, I've married two kids. Um, probably the most important part of my life, obviously, is family and enjoy my my little girls that I continue to call little and one's 18 and now going to UCF and the other is 16 and driving, or I should say driving is crazy. Um, she's ready to overtake the world and doesn't understand why she's not already running game time. So it's kind of fun to see how, that, how, how their perspective is. Um, but uh, I've been in the uh, vending business, if you will, coin op or, or in some form, if you self-service um, since 1990, so 32 years somehow. Um, November of 1990, I, I started working for myself doing snacks and sodas, and um, the, the story is told in, in, in long tales of every piece that you can put a coin into legally we've done. Uh, so um, coin laundry, pay phones, um, 
uh, all sorts of things that, that we've done, but landed pretty comfortably on the game side and the entertainment piece, um, enjoyed it. And I think we're pretty good at it. So we've kind of stuck with it for uh, a good amount of time now. I've been operating amusement routes since uh, God, 1998 um, on the game side. And in 2010, we had the opportunity to acquire um, two GameWorks locations, or actually three. One was a simultaneous transaction to someone else in two locations being our Miami and Tampa stores and converted them or um, rebranded them to GameTime and grew the brand ever since. So we're six stores today, um, had a couple other stores in the pipe for development entering into COVID and that kind of threw some wrenches in things. And we've, we've landed where we are today and, and healthy with six stores and you know, kind of re-gearing for um, that next uh, push and growth. So, Mike, if somebody's not familiar with the Game Time store or the Game Time facility, can you kind of describe the experience? Sure. So, we, we actually run two different prototypes as, we, as we've tried to build kind of what our brand looks like going forward and, and figure out how we're going to, what that path looks like. So, there's a 25,000 and a 35,000 square foot prototype. 25,000 square feet is made up of about 14,000 square feet of game floor um, and then full food and beverage and obviously back of house and, and the balance in that space. 35,000 is a very similar concept, um, but has full, full lane bowling. So only our Daytona store is the 35,000 square foot prototype. Um, and obviously we're very flexible on that, right? We're not, we don't have a pre-built um, prototype that, that we, we scrape any building that exists and build it ground up. We'll obviously backfill an existing space. We've, we've had the luxury of building two brand new stores, which is certainly a, a learning experience and, and what it takes to develop a store from the ground up. Um, and then obviously we've, we've retrofitted uh, or second gen two boxes that were both bookstores, ironically, both borders before we took them over, but no, no Lincoln landlords or anything else, but ironically, both borders, our Fort Myers and our Coe store stores are both borders before we took them over. Um, so, uh, essentially a large game floor and, um, and full, full food and beverage offerings, including obviously banquet services and so on. Um, we do see that there's a, a real need for additional attractions um, and we can kind of talk about what those would look like, but I'm, a, I'm really a self-service or self-driven experience. And um, we feel like that is gonna be mostly unattended if, if at all uh, attended. So we're gonna, uh, we've stayed away from some of the other things that are attended based or rides or any of those things. And we'll, we'll look at different opportunities as we look at larger scale formats. Um, but they'll oftentimes either be in, in partnership with someone or some somehow cooperating um, for fully attended type, um, whether it's go-karts or roller coasters or whatever, all of those other attractions are that we, we love and see at IAPA every year or any of the trade shows we go to or amusement parks we visit, um, but we'll, we'll stay near and dear to what we do well. So Mike, you mentioned the, uh, the GameWorks locations you took over, you mentioned the Borders locations you took over, and you mentioned that uh, you've had the opportunity to build a couple locations from the ground up and, uh, and that there were some learning experiences there. Can you share uh, kind of maybe what, what some of those surprises might have been in uh, sure. developing those locations from the ground up? Yeah, so um, you know, the, the, the story is actually that um, we had Miami and Tampa um, running as, as what were GameWorks and we had rebranded them and um, started to really understand our own identity is, you know, our, our brands in this business, or certainly in most every business, while we think we make our brands, the truth is our guests determines what our brands are, right? So as you build the brand and, and you figure out what the guests believe it is and, and how they use the brand and how they enjoy it, um, the brand kind of, you know, kind of 
builds its own culture and in, in what people see it to be. So um, we really had a, a good idea of what that brand was and what we were doing going forward. Um, we had the opportunity to look at the far Fort Myers location, and we had determined we were going to build in that Borders location. It's 22,000 square feet. Um, and the learning curve of what it really takes to build a center on paper first and, and where you make those mistakes and, and, and how you remedy those throughout the process and how expensive those are. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you, you think, oh, well, I just meant the, the wall to be five feet over and you realize that it includes drains that are already sealed under concrete or perhaps electric or fire code or additional sprinkler heads or a complete rework of a life safety plan. So um, those things you get better at and, and you figure them out as you go. Um, Certainly, there's a, a lot of great professionals out there, architects and, and GCs and the people that do that for a living, uh, but they don't typically understand not only our business, but they certainly don't understand our brand and not our brand as our customers have built it, right? So again, I wholeheartedly believe our, our customers have built our brand and I've got to build a center that's reflective of what they believe our brand is. Um, so the, the learning curves on what it took to develop the first store was interesting and, um, you know, we we built our, selected our materials and selected our finishes and, and built Fort Myers. And we looked back at it and we were incredibly proud of it. And we were very happy with it. Um, we actually were, you know, kind of ramped up and ready to go and build more stores. And we got finished with Fort Myers and we looked outside and said, okay, we're ready to build the next store. And it took us two and a half years to get the next deal done. And so um, the biggest learning curve there, as we said, okay, we're going to you know, go on this adventure of building a brand that now is multi-units and we're going to expand was that that pipe going forward was was much more important than we thought it was, right? So it just seemed like as you had a brand and landlords recognized it and you could make relationships and you had the capital available to you, you would go pull the trigger. And that's just not the reality of how they, those deals play out. So um, really that exercise of building a pipe and, and having that next door in line and working through architectural plans and selecting your materials and your spec book that has to be built. And there, I think we have more documented details than exist in our centers at this point. And, and I, I probably credit one of my dear friends who, who's turned out you know, from being our GC that's built three of our stores um, for so much of the documentation, but, you know, getting the right people on your team that understand it and want to learn it was incredibly important for us. And, and their, their expertise, somebody that's, you know, simply built centers, whether he's built water parks or hospitals and all of these amazing things that he's built, um, that experience was invaluable, right? I, I can't go out and get gather that experience. Um, and by the way, if I did, I'm no longer in the FEC business because I've turned into a GC and I'm building things. So um, getting the right people on your team has, has really been paramount, uh, but that experience has been a, a huge learning curve for us as an organization and how to do that. So Mike, you said a couple of times already about how your customers determine your brand. So I'm curious if they've said anything or you've gotten feedback from them that was kind of surprising or different from what you thought your brand was. Um, so, you know, that, that's interesting. And I'll, I'll give you a, a little bit of a story that goes that, that goes back to a prior brand. And, and you, you'll appreciate why I think our customers really build our brand. But we had built um, a small chain of inline game rooms um, in malls. So inlines are called in line with other stores. That's what the mall business calls them. So we were small inline game rooms and we had acquired one and then we had acquired another and then took over two spaces and built that. And what we found as I wanted to grow that was that the biggest barrier was landlords, was that we were the unwanted stepchild of the mall, right? So they all believed they needed an ice cream parlor. They all believed they needed more than one ice cream parlor. They certainly could take a candy store and they would subsidize a candy store because there was no money in it, but they all needed a gap. They all needed a Starbucks or a coffee. Their food court had to be full, all of those things. Well, the arcade, they certainly didn't feel they need, right? And so we 
we said, oh, well, we're going to build a brand that really is suited towards a landlord liking an arcade. And so we had come up with a brand called Token Cafe, which was a cafe style arcade, which was literally um, soft seating within our game room and um, and much more space than you would typically have and good lighting and very contemporary design, um, very family friendly. We were not the dark dingy arcade. Um, so we had built this brand that we thought landlords would like, and we were right. Landlords liked it. What was interesting was that our customers didn't figure it out. They didn't understand it. They didn't, they couldn't get the token cafe piece. And there was a day that, um, we got into a dispute with the state of Florida, um, so much so that we got shut down as an arcade in our Sebring location. And um, it took us escalating it to the governor's office, ironically. And, and I had some contacts from doing some advocacy trips up to the state. And we had made some calls and really just kind of pushed our way that we didn't get the governor on the phone, but we got to the governor's office and, and really made some waves. And it took us a day and a half to get back open. But in our Sebring location, there was a health inspector in the store that said we're operating a cafe legally without a food license. I said, well, we're not a cafe. And they said, no, no, you are a cafe. It says it on your sign. I said, no, 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 we're not a cafe. And she brought the sheriff and she shut us down for operating without a food license. We said, we're not serving food. She goes, oh, you sell gummy bears at the redemption counter. And I'm like, okay, there's definitely something wrong with our brand when we have a health inspector telling us we need a food service license. And, and we, we, I had come to realize at that point was that while I had understood the brand that I put together that I believed um, was going to sell what I wanted to sell, I figured customers would show up and they would enjoy an arcade as, as we knew they would in malls and still do today. It's certainly not what it was in the late 80s or early 90s, um, but I, 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 the, the landlords would understand it and would look at the profile of what we build and say, oh, it's family friendly, it's clean, it's nice, and so on. Um, it, 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 did, it didn't jive with the customers. And I, and I knew that once the, the health inspector had fought with us to shut us down. Mm. So um, in, in, our, in our adventure with game time, um, I think uh, it's interesting that um, we get compared to many of our competitors, right? So you, you'll hear that, oh, I went to a main event and it's like a Dave and Buster's or, or you're like a Dave and Buster's or you're like a Chuck E. Cheese for adults. We hear a lot of those comparisons. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll get, you know, a landlord might ask me if we're, if we're in a meeting and they say, oh, so you're like a Dave and Buster's and they'll, they'll say, oh, well, I'm not trying to insult you. And I said, well, hold on. You're comparing me to a company that this, at the time that they're publicly traded. And I said, you know, last quarter they reported they were going to do $1.2 billion this year. I'm pretty sure you can compare me all day long, <laughs> as long as you're willing to give me a lease that's reflective of a balance sheet that's doing $1.2 billion, right? So, you know, didn't, didn't take it wrong, but um, not a lot that's surprising, I guess, in, in kind of how our customers interpreted the brand, um, but we built it consciously believing that we were a family-friendly um, version of a Dave and Buster's or a main event or what that is, right? So I believe there's a great place and, and those brands do a great job with their, with their audience, um, but they're pretty well focused on a 24 to 35 year old male kind of who that is and what they'll do with pay-per-view fights or sports and kind of how they'll what their bartenders will or won't wear or what they'll sell and so we were just looking for a, a broader family audience um and I, I think we we've done a pretty good job at it i think we've probably made more adjustments than i can recall um but i think we, we've hit the mark and that I'm, I'm proud of our who our guest is i'm proud of how we serve them um and, and the results that we get so i think for the most part they they see what we saw and, and we've gotten it right 
That's really fascinating. Thank you for uh, for sharing all of that. Uh, one of the things too, and and you mentioned it uh, toward the beginning, but one to come back to that too is uh, is the importance of of the F and B aspect, the food and beverage uh, within game time. Uh, you know, as it compares to perhaps those those other types of FECs that the landlords might compare you to, that it's you know very important for them as well. I curious as far as I I would say the the significance in it, and maybe. I almost want to say the, the evolution of food and beverage within the FEC experience. And you really take an approach that it's it's much it's much more heightened, it's much more elevated than perhaps what what the standard may have been in the past. Uh, and really kind of weaving that into the strategy that says, yeah, you can play here, but uh, you know, you should you should plan to come here around mealtime as well. Sure. So um I think you know, food and beverage takes a uh an enormous amount of focus and and a, a, a great amount of energy. It, you know, it's probably that 80-20 rule, right? So 80% of your focus goes there and it makes up 20% of your results is probably closer to what food and beverage does in our environment. Um, we don't do um, nearly as good in food and beverage as I'd like to, right? I think we all look at segments of our business and say, you know, we we, we could be better at it or, or we certainly should be experts at, in this field. Um, I think we do a very good job. I think we're, uh, you know, we're probably 90, 95% scratch kitchen. Um, so I think that the product that comes out is uh, above the expectations of the guest, um, but we're not driving them back again for it. So we're doing something wrong, right? If, if, our, if our guests are saying, um, you know, no, we didn't come at all to play. We're just having dinner and we left. Then I think we did something right on food and beverage, right? And I don't, I don't necessarily think we're in the food and beverage space. I'm not, not trying to compete with the dart. And I, I certainly think there's a great place for Cheesecake Factory and, and, and that those experiences matter. Um, in an experience where we're complementing our game floor, I think we do a good job at it. I'd like to see our percentage shift a little bit heavier to food and beverage. Um, and, and a few of those, a few of those components will continue to change. Uh, you know, we started off in, in 2010 and, and when we took over the two game works locations, um, there was a lot of inconsistencies in the food and food, uh, game works had a very robust food and beverage department and a great team there running it. Um, and one is I knew going in, I didn't have that, right. I could keep their current menu and I could continue to do it. Um, there were products that I wasn't happy with. And, and as it came out, my biggest issue was that the consistency wasn't there. Right. And, and so that was a training issue and that was a, a product quality issue and, and how we did a lot of things. And again, I didn't have the expertise. So my approach was actually stepping way back. And I said, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go back 20 years if that's what it takes. And I'm okay with my, my pizza tasting like cardboard, as long as it's always the same cardboard. And then I'll, I'll figure out how to get better cardboard next, but let me first get it consistent. And so I, what I wanted was that when a guest came in and they had an expectation, we met that expectation. So if their expectation was that the pizza was mediocre, but it was the same as last time, I had thought we hit it on the mark to begin with, right? And so we, we kind of pieced that together um, in first by, by first standardizing what was there. And then we started to build um, a, a more robust food and beverage department. I can tell you that food and beverage does take an enormous amount of energy and the results that come out within our space are always diminished. And it's because of the lack of expectations from a guest perspective, right? So um, again, I'm a Dave and Buster's fan. I'll use their brand regularly. Their Hollywood store is a few miles from my office and I go there regularly. Certainly if someone's in town, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to take them and see what Dave and Buster's is doing and always happy with their food. Um, but I don't think anybody's sitting on their couch at home saying, hey, let's go to game time for dinner or let's go to Dave and Buster's for dinner. They'll go for a night out to Dave and Buster's or to game time. But because of that, that, 
part of the week that 75, 80, 90% of our open hours that is significantly slower than we'd like it to be. And it's just the nature of the FEC business. The food and beverage department gets no traction, right? So we can't really build any lunch business. You can't really build any Tuesday business on at night during school year and so on and so forth. So I think food and beverage is underutilized in our space. And so we're, as we as we build new stores and as we continue to refine our, our prototype, we find ourselves blending that mix better, right? So what's the size of food and beverage? How do you build more hybrid spaces? So existing spaces like Miami and Tampa had party rooms and we build centers without party rooms. It's not because we don't do parties, but I certainly think the parties are going to be busy on a Saturday afternoon and Saturday night they're not. So I'd rather have that restaurant space. So we have collapsible walls that are part of our Daytona store that overlook the bowling alleys as all glass walls that are a curtain wall system. Um, and so it, it, it gives us an expansion of our dining space for that busier time, but it gives us semi-private space for parties. So we've, we've learned how to kind of manipulate that space. And again, I don't think we do it as good um, today as we'll do it tomorrow. And you know, the day after that, I think we'll do it even better on the next design. So we continue to learn from it. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, Mike, you talk about, you know, the food and beverage and the mix and, you know, how, how you use that space. And I got to think that when you approach, you know, a brand new space, for example, 25,000 square feet, 35,000 square feet, and it's kind of like this, this blank slate and you got to figure out not only what to put in there, but the best use of space, how many, like you mentioned, the bowling lanes, how many bowling lanes, you know, is, is the right profit margin and, you know, all those type of things. So can you kind of walk us through sort of that attraction mix conversation and, you know, how much game space there is, bowling, food, you know, that kind of thing that kind of goes goes through your mind when you're creating a space like that? Sure. So I guess the, the first thing I'll say is as we're building a space um, and we, again, start with the blank slate, which is, is such a great part of the process, right? We're so excited when we sit down with the first space or we, we just get a floor plan from a landlord that we want to work on or a building that's coming available and we want to work on it. That's the most exciting part. And for me, that that first that first piece is really standing at the front door and visualizing if I'm standing at the front door, I just opened it and I'm looking in, what am I seeing? Right. And so I first need to understand, am I looking in and is it just a full-size restaurant? Am I looking in? Is it really just a bar? Am I looking in? Is it, is it just an arcade? Right. So um, I think there's some examples like that, that kind of apply. And, um, you know, the Dave and Buster's Hollywood store is an example is a legacy store, right? So it's, a, it's one of their original, it's almost 80,000 square feet, I think it's probably the number. I um, mean, it actually was smaller and the gold's gym was behind it. And when that failed, um, they had taken on the additional space. But when you walk in, you're walking into this big empty vestibule with beautiful wood floors and used, it still has the tin roof, used to have the leather belts, uh, fans that went around that venue. Um, but you walk in and there's the, um, what do they call it? The something mix, um, the, the, the card host where you could buy game cards, but I don't remember what they call it. Now they, they renamed that area. And then you look beyond that and you see a bar and you look beyond that and you see a restaurant and you look to your left and you see a big banquet space. Um, so I don't know that you walk in and feel like it's an entertainment center, right? So that view to me is, is not necessarily wrong, but it's wrong for our brand. So when we come in, we kind of really want to offer because we have two real elements. We have food and beverage and we have games. We want a blend of what you're saying. So if you walk into one of our spaces, a restaurant is going to be within, so the restaurant bar is going to be within iShot. Um, and it's going to be a very clean, simple view. 
um, very contemporary design. We really designed it to feel like the lobby of a hotel, right? I really wanted comfortable, comfortable finishes. I really want you to feel like you can spend time in it. So we, we want to build it as someone's living room or better someone's kitchen, where if you go to a really good house party, you're standing in the kitchen, having, you never sit down for dinner and you finish, everybody finished their, their, their dinner standing there. So that environment where you walk in and it's very welcoming. So it's, the mix is really, uh, probably 65% game floor and 35% food and beverage. Uh, but it's really about 20% food and beverage because food and beverage from a guest perspective really is only the dining space, right? They don't care that we have a kitchen. They don't really care that because we have a kitchen, we have to have bathrooms. And by the way, we have to have offices, right? So that blend of space um, really is made up primarily where you're going to say 65% entertainment and then 35% is the balance. And that works in both prototypes, right? Because we, we, in the 10,000 square foot more, 8,000 square feet of it is made up of bowling, right? So we did 12 lanes of bowling and it's 8,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's so interesting. Just hearing, uh, hearing kind of the, the blank slate process and love what you're saying. Of you're standing at the entrance, you're looking in and saying, well, what, what do you want to see? And that probably really ties in with a lot of the things that you were talking about towards the beginning of uh, what do I want to see that will help the customer determine the brand to make sure that our goals are aligned with that too. I, I would imagine that's right. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we're, um, we're five years into Fort Myers, right? So Chris, we opened um, on Christmas day, actually in, in 2018, 2017, I don't remember the, no, 2016, I think Christmas day. Um, and we opened only the game floor. And so we're five years in and, and we structure our deals it's certainly now what we've learned, but we structure our deals as 15-year deals and three five-year options. So we want 30-year control on a space with the intent that in the first 15 years, there's a rebrand of a prototype, right? So we go to a Gen 2 within a space. So the building gets beat up. And, and for a building that doesn't get beat up, it means they didn't make any money, right? So the, 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 the most beat up FECs are the ones you really wish you owned. And the ones that look beautiful all the time, you're kind of questioning what they do for a living. Um, so our Fort Myers store, we're getting ready to remodel. And actually just going into COVID, we were really getting to it. We were going to remodel it earlier. Again, it's the first store we built um, in a second gen space, but it was the first store we built. So we learned a lot. Um, and recently kind of doing some internal interviews and talking to people about what they think when guest walks in and, you know, we struggle in Fort Myers with food and beverage. It does our, our least volume in percentage in food and beverage. Um, and I was surprised to hear that several customers don't realize we have a restaurant and actually kind of blows me away. You walk in and the, the space is at, the door is at an angle. And if you look a little to your right, there's a bar in front of you and 110 TVs that, that stand that restaurant. Um, and obviously dining tables and everything else. And if you look to your left, there's redemption and a big game floor. Well, I guess the bar and, and restaurant is very toned down. If you look to your left, there's lights that'll blow your eyes up as far as you can see them and how they build these games. Um, so I guess people really just don't realize we have food and beverage and, and that entrance has a solid wall that has our kiosks on it and that. And so our, our current builds actually have that as a half wall and there's glass that overlook the entire space. So in, in remodeling Fort Myers, we'll, we'll bring it closer to what we know it is today, which is smaller food and beverage, but a better, a better uh, visibility on food and beverage. Mike, a little bit ago, uh, I believe you mentioned COVID and, you know, kind of some of the things that have happened uh, for your for, for your facilities during that time, um, 
you know, some people will say COVID is over. Some people will say that, you know, we're still still dealing with it. And uh, in different places you go, there's still, there's still um, you know, things you have to do wearing masks and things like that. But I'm just curious kind of how COVID kind of affected uh, game time and what kind of things you did to, to overcome those and, and get back on track. Sure. So um, I, I guess I'll, I'll give my view on it, which is <laughs> being here in Florida and, you know, maybe feeling a certain way with, with how we've got to climb through it. But now knowing what we know and truly looking backwards, I actually think COVID never happened. Right. So I, I can't tell you we didn't live through it, through the through the decisions that were made. Um, but I, I don't know that that COVID ever took place in, in how it played out in our minds while it was going on. So certainly in hindsight, you know, I, I think the Monday morning quarterback, Monday morning quarterbacking the game, I think we'd have all played it differently. Um, so COVID was interesting um, in that we took on some some pretty large um, life lessons. Uh, a lot of them I I'd, wish I never had, <laughs> right? I think most of us took lessons on that we thought, God, I, I'd be okay if I never knew how to do that. Um, but we we fought through it like I think everybody else. We were very fortunate to be in Florida that we got open sooner than others. Um, we did all the things that everybody seemed to think we should do, including ourselves, right? So we we required masks and we and we sold masks that, you know, if you didn't have a mask and we and um, we did the, our best to serve our guests and we limited, we did, did try to do social distancing and we put sanitizer stations everywhere and did all of those things. Um, you know, it impacted our, our venues drastically, obviously from a, a revenue perspective, um, it impacted our staff. We had staff that was, um, you know, frustrated and, and struggling and just wanted to come back to work. And we had staff that, um, that was scared to come into work. And we, you know, we had a, a manager that, that was really great in a venue and he was pretty new to us um, and had two newborns, right? As two, two twin newborns, right? As COVID happened. And as we were getting ramped back up to open and we invited everybody back, I think he worked one or two shifts and, and was too scared to come back to work, was literally terrified to bring home COVID to his two infants, which I can appreciate, right? And good guy and, and great manager. And I, I, I don't know what he's doing today. I certainly wish him well. And I hope his, his two children, which were most important to him, and by the way, should be, um, are, are doing great. But we had every span of impact that you can have, whether, whether it was the closure or the uncertainty of how to do it, or do you shut off every other machine? Do you let guests play on the same machine together? Um, and then we also had the extremes, right? I mean, again, it's funny to talk about Fort Myers, but we're we're in markets that are diverse. But you know, in Fort Myers, we dealt with a, a, a few challenges. You know, a guest came in with a you know no mask on and 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 you know waving an American flag, and we're not going to take away his constitutional rights. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm sorry, and and I, I respect the flag, so I'm not going to do it do to you what I'd like to do with the flag, but I'll do that to you with something else. So feel free to walk out of the building a little funny since it's up your ass. <laughs> but it's just, it's, you know, we're just, you're just going to come in and you're going to rile people up and cause all sorts of problems. Right. So um, we fought every battle. I think that, that, that you'll hear out there. I think we we've seen it and we've had, you know, the guests that had certain expectations and came in and said, they can't believe how dirty our place was. Cause we weren't, there wasn't one employee assigned to every person to wipe down the games when, um, when they were done. And, and, and then we had people that, that would, you know, tell us that they can't believe how clean it was and how comfortable they were. So um, I think the, the, the simple fact is, is like everybody else in the space, we tried incredibly hard. Um, we're, we're here on the other side of it and we're still here. So that's a good thing. Um, but a lot of life lessons. I mean, I, I don't, I don't even know that I, I could really repeat them all. I, I remember hearing things that I just couldn't believe we we're hearing, whether, you know, we had gotten our Miami-Dade store had gotten closed and then reopened with all of our stores and then re 
closed by the county. And they were on their third version of their new, new, new normal standard because they, they, and it was an 85 page standard. And I mean, we're, we're reading through it, trying to understand what is it that we're supposed to do, right? Um, so, and that's kind of when I say, if you look back and now knowing what we know, did COVID ever really happen? And I, I, would, I would wager to say no from, from a scientific perspective. I, I think there's a lot of things that had real impacts, but I don't think the death toll or the death count was real relative to the reflection of actual COVID causes. I don't think the transmissibility was right. I don't think masks really did anything. I, there's a lot of those possibilities. And again, I, I don't know well enough. I can tell you that if something comes out again, then I'm, I'm, I'm scared to bring it home. I'm wearing a mask if I think it's going to make me feel better. So I don't, I don't think it's wrong that I wore a mask for a period of time. I just think in hindsight, I don't think COVID ever really happened. Hmm. Uh, so, Mike, there there was a period of six months there where Game Time filed for and then exited Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. Uh, I yep. would love it if you'd be able to to share. I I, I think what I call a pandemic recovery story, or just sure. maybe maybe just take us through that roller coaster. Yeah. So um, funny, you, you and I have had conversations in the past, and I I, I speak publicly about how I really try to run a lot of exercises in our organization. And, um, you know, I, I find that organizations do their best at their worst times and their worst at their best times. Right. So, I mean, I think you can, you can see that, that the, the big automakers make their worst union deals at their best time when money is flowing and they make their best deals when they're on Capitol Hill um, asking for money and being told why you fly here on a private jet. Right. So <laughs> those, those decisions are very clear in, in that public view. So, um, you know, when, when you have um, centers like ours or, or, or a park or any of the others, um, if you have a guest injury, um, you'll find that the entire staff or everybody pulls together and they go inspect the park for trip hazards or somewhere somebody can cut themselves or what's the right safety protocol and so on. So I run these exercises and um, I typically like to do three a year. I typically do them towards the end of the year because in the route business, we were always slower at that time of year. And I would run exercises. So one year it would be, you know, we had a, a very bad car accident with a route driver and we'd pull people together and we'd talk about what could we do different and should we really have a policy that you're not on your phone while you're driving and, and if you're on the clock that we really want that or, or, or should we have, a, you know, whatever those are. If you're loading ATMs, do we really have a policy that you're always loading with two people because you're just not going to be carrying cash and you know, it's not even a matter that I want people to, I don't want bodyguards. I don't want people that are going to, you know, fight with someone else for the money. Um, but there's a, there's some safety in numbers. Somebody's paying attention to who's behind them and they're handling $20,000 in cash. Right. So, so, so those, those exercises are very interesting. So bankruptcy was a, an exercise that I did for many years. And I would typically sit back for a day or two in my office or three days and, and early on and evaluate our decisions over the past 12 months. If I was filing for bankruptcy, what decision would I have to ask for to be re redone, right? So if I'm going to go ask for a, a redo and say, you know, your honor, I, I signed this contract, but I don't really think I should be obligated to it. And I want you to forego it, whether they would allow me to or not, I would run that exercise. And Early on, I found lots of those decisions. As, as, a, as a young entrepreneur, I made a bunch of those decisions, whether it was I bought a, or at least a more expensive car that I enjoyed driving and I was using it as my company car and I was burning cash that I shouldn't burn. Well, then maybe I should have a nice car that I keep at home and I can have my car for work that I'm going to put 65,000 miles a year on is what I was doing early on, right? So those decisions were, were very interesting. And as, as the years went on, 
um, I would do that exercise and I would, I, I no longer found anything that I needed to undo that I needed to say, I, I think this is a wrong decision. Right. So I had removed a lot of the fluff and I still certainly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm human and we, we work for the things that we want. And so I'm not arguing that I don't have any fluff at home, but from a work perspective, I think we've worked really hard to have the things that are necessary and to run a very prudent operation. Um, so it's been probably four years that I hadn't run a bankruptcy exercise and, um, September 24th, on a Friday, um, we were in a position where we needed to file for Chapter 11 reorganization um, to protect ourselves, and we did. And um, going into it, uh, the, the short version, and I'll share some more details, but the short version is, is we went into it with two problems that were outside of our control, both landlord issues. Um, and those are the only two things that we ended up asking for help with in bankruptcy. Amazingly. So I, I look back and I said, I, I, I actually remember thinking about it and going, I can't believe I didn't have anything else. I didn't have a bunch of little contracts that I needed to wash. I didn't have somebody that I owed money to that I wanted to get rid of. We had two properties that transitioned landlords within COVID. One um, went into receivership and went back to um, and went back to Deutsche Bank and Deutsche Bank um, or their receiver had determined that they weren't going to live up to their obligation and, and that they owed us $1.9 million in allowance and they weren't going to live up to that. So we weren't going to continue building out and we needed to exit that lease. And we had another lease that had gotten very far behind with the landlord and we were working through it perfectly fine. And the new landlord that came in had a different plan and we hadn't documented it. We were in a very good relationship with our landlord. So we had two situations that had grown out of our control and we needed protection. So um, chapter 11 is probably the single um, biggest life lesson I think I would take through COVID in that, you know, that what that looked like. And I remember um, going home and, and telling my wife, I think, you know, tomorrow we might file for chapter 11. She didn't understand what that meant. And by the way, neither did I, right. I wanted to understand and kind of talk to, I had a dear friend um, in a non-affiliated business, a large candy company um, that ironically had filed for reorganization as well and used the same attorney by complete fluke in conversation with the, with the law firm. He said, Oh, we did this company. And I said, Oh gosh. And I hung up the phone with him and he didn't know, but I called the CEO who I knew personally and um, talked to him about it. And he, you know, he had, they were owned by a large hedge fund um, and he wasn't given the option. He was told that they were filing for reorganization and that they were going to resolve. They had something like 165 leases and they were going to resolve a bunch of their leases and get things done. Um, and his answer to me was as entrepreneurs, we tend to always push through it. And somehow the big guys that have the money to give him knew the right thing. And it was the best thing he had ever done. And I went to sleep that night knowing it was the right thing for us. And so chapter 11 was very interesting. Um, it's a very, very interesting process. I can tell you that for someone that doesn't run a very clean operation, meaning we document every dollar, we pay every penny of sales tax, we don't owe somebody for breaks that they didn't take, we don't there's just none of those skeletons, right? I've worked really hard to just say we're going to be we're going to be really sharp and we're going to build a team that we're, we're we're happy with and we're going to build an organization that we're proud of and we're going to wear it on our sleeves or on our shirts for that matter on a regular basis. And so going into it, um, we had very little to to share and to document, and we had almost no nothing contested. The, you know, the, the one landlord that um, that. A farm Miami landlord that was the new landlord had a few things to file and contesting and they didn't like that the protections that the law offered us we were afforded. Um, and that was it. Uh, we didn't have any vendors show up we didn't ask for a discount from any of our banks we didn't ask for a discount from any of our vendors we 
didn't ask for anything. You know, the, um, in that example, we had a few vendors that more than anything, I felt that I mean, we have 20 year relationships with vendors. And um, while I'm able and willing to pay them, we were sitting on several million dollars in cash. Um, we weren't allowed if it was pre-petition, if it was the day before or the minute before we filed petition, you're not allowed to pay it. So um, we went on more than one occasion, but um, we went and I, and I had asked um, the, the courts if I could step in the shoes of the creditor. And I paid some bills personally for vendors that needed to be paid because they were smaller or they were larger and they, they, they needed to be paid. And I took a back seat to every other creditor. And, and, you know, the judge was not unhappy with me, but made me hire my own bankruptcy attorney personally and understand what that, what that meant, which really meant that I was not even in a creditor class that would be paid if there was any discounts to be had. I was at the bottom of the barrel and I said, I get it. But these vendors that have treated me well for a very long time um, need their money and I'm going to pay them and I'll, I'll take the backseat. I happen to be paid, but we paid everybody 100% and exited, exited bankruptcy very clean. We, we washed the one deal in clear water because they weren't going to live up to it and we weren't going to fight that battle to, to be in a mall that's under receivership. And our Miami store that performs very well has been paid completely current and um, we're doing our thing and they're doing their thing. So a um, very interesting experience, but um, you know, it was very interesting talking to somebody that went through it. He kind of reminded me that somehow or another um, all of the significantly larger players understand how to use those tools. And as entrepreneurs, we just want to push through and we know we can make it work. Um, and I, I went to sleep feeling better that night. I don't know that my wife did. <laughs> I don't know that, I don't know that she understood the story as I, I, I was as comfortable with it as I was. Um, but, you know, I went in knowing that I was going to share everything transparently and I wasn't going to shortcut anybody. And that's how it played out, which was very fortunate. That's really cool, Mike. Thank you for sharing that. Um, one of the questions I have then, um, you know, you mentioned your wife didn't necessarily understand it. I would imagine some of your employees didn't understand it, right? So how did that go over, you know, kind of telling them, telling them the story or, you know, kind of explaining what was going on? I'm sure many of them kind of feared for their jobs and what's going on. So kind of walk us through how that went. Yeah, so... Um... You know, that, that's that's interesting because that's, a, a, I guess, another part, you know, we kind of all filter out the things that we don't want to remember, right? So th there's a lot of those moments that are hard and, and we tend to do that. So that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I have um, Shirley Fields, who I believe both of you have met, and she's been with us um, since the GameWorks acquisition, and, and she's our chief operating officer. She was the GM in Miami and um, just truly a rock star, just one of those people that you count on any day of the week and, and has so much knowledge and so much background and she had come in my office and I had explained to her what we were doing and and, uh, and, and told her what that process was going to be like and she left the office for a few minutes and came back and she said you know I think we should tell all the managers and I'm like well you know it's not a big deal like what, what are we doing and she said well you know they're going to find out pretty quick and I said oh that's interesting well she had been with GameWorks when they filed for bankruptcy and I hadn't thought of that experience. And she said, you know, it took like 10 minutes for them to be, for the news to be on the phone with us. And I was like, oh my goodness, like I hadn't thought of that. Um, and so her background and her experience was incredibly valuable. So we had pulled together our GMs and did a, a Teams meeting. And so there were six GMs on the call and we explained what we were doing and we explained our cash position and our plan and what we anticipated and 
what the possible worst case scenarios were, right? I mean, you get reminded at, at, at every turn that if for some reason you do something wrong or the judge thinks you did something wrong, that she can convert you to a liquidation chapter seven and they can take everything in the bank. And by the way, our bank, which Live Oak Bank is, is who we who we have our, our capital with or, or where we, we raised our capital from, I should say, and we had to get their approval um, to use the cash. It's called cash collateral, right? Because it's their, they're the secured creditors. So it's their cash essentially. So we had to get a cash collateral agreement and had to show them what we were going to spend it on in all of these processes. Um, and so we explained all of those things to the GMs and, um, and asked the GMs to share it with everybody. And um, 35 minutes later, 40 minutes later, we got our petition number and we got a call from Miami 40 minutes later that the Sun Sentinel was on the phone asking about the bankruptcy. And I remember thinking, oh, dear God, thank goodness Shirley remembered that and she knew we should share it, right? So that would be a very different call had you heard it for the first time from um, from a, a newscaster that says, oh, you guys just filed for bankruptcy. What does that mean, right? So we had explained what we believed it meant and, and how we thought that process would be. And we were incredibly fortunate. We had a, an amazing attorney that that handled it and really just held my hand through it. He understood that I was uh, you know, a one-man show that was going to handle it because these other people hire consultants to get through the process that kind of put together all the reports and do the amount of financial reporting and, and all of that burden. And I said, look, I'm, I'm going to take it on myself. If there's any place I'm not going to waste money is in bankruptcy, paying for bankruptcy. And um, the firm was amazing. Uh, uh, it was Lisa who was, uh, I think she's the paralegal or I don't know. I, I, I call her the everything because if I needed a, an answer, I, I don't want to speak bad about Jim, who's the attorney that, that really led us through the process. But I, I think he went to her for the answers. I mean, she was just, uh, you know, really a great resource and she was incredibly powerful and got us through it. Um, so it, it was a lot of fun, but we explained that all and, and it, it played out as we had anticipated, which was very fortunate. I, I believed we'd have gotten through it much faster. Um, I thought we, we'd be out in a few months. Um, and I, I think I was right from the perspective that we could have been, uh, but the amount of documentation and the kind of the process of motions and waiting for a motion calendar and then getting in for a hearing and the slowdown of COVID. So the federal courthouse wasn't open yet and we were still doing things through Zoom and the judge had to be in the courthouse, but the courthouse was under construction and so all sorts of all sorts of things there. So we were we were in chapter 11 for six months and seven days. Um, and I think we could have done it in three months. And e even with all of those hurdles, I think knowing what I know today, I think we could have done it in three months. Mm -hmm. Mike, I feel like we uh, just blinked and our, our time <laughs> is flying by here. But, uh, you know, as we start to wind this down here, I, I would love to know, just reflecting on the last you know, 45, 50 minutes or so, and, and just all that you've shared with us, I, what is one of the best uh, pieces of advice that you like to give in regards to executive leadership? You know, um, I, I guess just recently, and, and, and I haven't shared this with a lot of people, and, and I'm, I'm just starting to kind of document it. So it, I think some people even internally might hear this piece before I've ever started delivering it to our GMs and, uh, and kind of how I think we need to approach some of our, some of our management and our leadership. Um, but I've come to realize that you know, our GMs are really not GMs. Um, I think they're investment managers and we invest in our team on a regular basis. And I think they need to manage that investment. I think we need to invest in our teams on a regular basis. They need to invest in their managers and those managers need to invest in our um, all of our guest service team members that kind of touch every single guest and make that experience. And I, I started to kind of think it through and digest that. And I realized that if they approach it as an investment 
manager, I think if you if you were an investment manager and you had and let's just take any one of our venues and we spend a million dollars a year in payroll, right? So if you were saying you're going to invest a million dollars over the year and you're going to continue to invest it every week, um, where are you investing it? And are you investing it in the right companies? Are you going to replace that team member because they're not the right team member? Or if you've decided to invest in that team member and you're frustrated with them, are you really going to give up on them but still allow them to show up, right? So you've got somebody that kind of does, oh, whatever, oh, they're here, but they kind of just do their thing, right? Um, I've talked about it in the past where I think, you know, team members are like games and 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 you're you, just because a game powers on doesn't mean it serves to be in the building. Right. So um, and, and and they show up to work. So the game lights up, it turns on. So it showed up to work. It's doing its thing. It's making a little bit of money. It must deserve to be there. Well, not really. Right. And in the game scenario. Um, so in the example of, of our GMs and our management teams, I really think they need to approach their jobs as investment managers and investment managers evaluate their investment on a regular basis. They write reports and they put together shift notes on a regular basis of how their investments are paying off. They watch for dividends. They determine who they're going to invest more money with. Right. So if, you, if you've got your money divided up and you, you're going to give somebody a raise, are you giving it to the right person? Or are you putting more money in the right place? And if you're going to invest even much more than money and you're going to invest your time in that person? Are you investing it in the right place? Are they in the right position in the building? Have you postured them properly? Have you trained them? Have you invested in them as they deserve? And are you getting the payback, right? So there's often times where you can make an investment and it might be a great investment. And for whatever reason, the rest of the public doesn't think that that stock is going to perform and the stock never performs. Well, just because you think they're the right person doesn't mean they're in the right place or the right position. So, um, if you, I, I think we're going to really dig into that a little bit more and try to understand it. But I think from a leadership perspective, um, I would I would ask people to start looking at every dollar that goes out as an investment. And if they're looking at it as an investment and they expect a return, are they putting it in the right place? Yeah, and that's really probably a mindset shift for a lot of people, right? You know, thinking about being a general manager and managing the facility, that's very different than looking at it as an investor um, and really an owner, right? And looking right. at, I own every dollar. And if I'm, like you said, going to spend or invest a million dollars in labor, I've got to get the right payback or return on that. And I think that really, at least in my mind, if I were in that position would would say, well, I've got to make sure I'm getting the right return, which means I may have to do something different. Like you said, I may have to coach right. people differently. I may have to, you know, you know, put a little bit more time into a specific team member, or, you know, if they're not the right fit, then it's time to, to separate. Right. So, right. Um, how yeah, how often do you leave an investment that's rotting, sitting rotting, right? <laughs> exactly. So, so if, exactly. You, if you view it as an investment, and again, it, you know, our team members, and when we look at them, um, unlike a, a stock as an investment that you put together as a portfolio, and maybe you re-diversify, um, if you had if you had a million dollars to invest, but every single week you had to make the decisions, your investments would be different. And so I'm, I'm going to ask our our management and our style is going to really be looking at that because I think they they tend to think that they're, you know, our, our GMs, our managers don't necessarily think they can spend money and don't necessarily think that they have certain powers because I think they, they view it and they say, oh, well, they're managing that from corporate or they give us an hour budget or they give us payroll. Um, but the reality is, is, is by them putting somebody on schedule, they've written them a check, right? So someone shows up to work and, and, and they have a pay rate and we're gonna pay it. So they've essentially signed that check. So on a regular basis, they're investing. And I don't know that they've ever viewed it and said, you know, I need a return for that investment. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and by the way, you know what you do with an investment is you treat it well, right? When's, when's the last time you invested in a stock and then went on social media and badmouthed 
the crap out of the company you just put money into, right? So, but, but in the meantime, we have team members that we don't necessarily have a personal connection with as we should, or managers should. And um, behind someone's back, we see a manager kind of go, oh yeah, he's always late or she's always doing this. Oh, they're always on their phone. Um, and so, you know, I think um, oftentimes I think that, that we forget that. So investments get treated differently. Um, and the, the, the last piece of that is I think when an investment um, isn't going correctly, I think people tend to own it, right? They say, oh, that, that was my choice. Um, and I've recently, you know, again, really digging through this, it's probably four days old in my brain at this point. And I, we struggle, by the way, for everybody watching, I promise everybody has the same problem. All of our team members are on cell phones all of the times. If they're not on their cell phone, they're on their watch because it's connected to their cell phone, all of those things. And I, I came to realize that the reason they're not on their, the reason they're on their cell phones is not their doing. And it's not our policy because our policy is they shouldn't be on the phone, but they don't know what else they're supposed to be doing. So instead of telling them what they're not supposed to be doing, we just need to make sure they understand what they should be doing. So if you got time to lean, you got time to clean, right? Whatever that, whatever you want to go in, in the food and beverage business, it's full hands in, full hands out. If you're walking in, make sure you have an empty dish. If you're walking out, bring somebody their food. Um, so I think as leadership, I don't know that we give anybody the ability and the direction to um, take on other tasks and what they should be doing when they're not busy. And I think that's what causes their phones to be picked up. And by the way, if you were investing in those people, you would make sure that those people knew what they should be doing. And it doesn't, don't get me wrong. I'm sure somebody will still pick up their phone. I'm sure that'll still happen. Um, but I think if we, if we own the difference and we understand that, I think we'll get different results. Yeah. Yeah. So much to think about there, treating your GMs as investment managers and then just everything that that springboards from there. So Mike, thanks so much for uh, for sharing that advice and, and for everything today here. Uh, if people want to learn more about Game Time or if they want to get a hold of you directly, where would you send them? Uh, certainly our website is gametimeplayers.com for just information on, on our company. Um, obviously, I would encourage them to visit any of our centers. Yeah, a lot of the people hopefully watching this will get to see in November um, at IAPA our Kissimmee store, which is our, our latest generation store that opened uh, the January before COVID. So as COVID was going on, I guess, somewhere in the world um, is about 15 minutes from the convention center. I would encourage them to visit it and see it and touch it and feel it. And by the way, provide me feedback. I'd love to hear it. I certainly want to hear it from my guests on a regular basis. I'd love to hear it from people in our space that may or may not have constructive criticism or any criticism. I want to hear it and I'll filter it as I, as I see fit. Um, and certainly if they want to get in touch with me personally, they're always welcome to email me. Uh, email is, is a, a great resource for me because it allows me to do it at my time. So for somebody that wants to get connected with me, email is great, but I would tell you that maybe a little slow responding, but I promise I'll respond. So um, we'll get connected and uh, certainly love to see everybody at IAP. I know I see, I'll see you guys there. Um, it's certainly the, the funnest week of the year. And it's always my birthday during IAP on November 15th. So this year it starts for, they're, they're kicking off the entire show for me again this year. <laughs> it's just wonderful. So, um, so, so, nice yeah, so well, I'll, be, I'll be there for my birthday and I'll be there um, enjoying the show. He certainly gets, gets my blood flowing the right way. The, the show is a great time. Well, Mike, I can't wait to see you on your birthday and we'll celebrate um, with 30,000 of our, our closest friends. Closest friends. In, there you go. In Orlando. Um, but Mike, again, thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a fascinating conversation. And for everybody who's out there watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. 
For more information, visit attractionpros.com.